I next met with Dr. Andrew Evans, and to begin, he presented an elderly patient from his practice. So he was a really nice guy. We had met this 81-year-old man with relapsed mannocell lymphoma after he had received two prior therapies. He had received bendamustine rituximab and rituximab with CVP therapy. And he had actually had relatively short remissions to those therapies. You would have hoped or maybe expected that he had at least a couple-year remission. But to both of those, it was really less than one year. So short remissions, although he wasn't incredibly symptomatic from the disease, and he also had a what I thought was a peculiar clinical presentation. He had some nodal disease, but he also had really these disseminated subcutaneous masses that were just all throughout, especially in his thorax, palpable, not painful, but definitely were increasing in size. And this case actually is from a little more than two years ago. So at the time, brutinib was not approved. And what I should have on here too is he actually was treated with lenalidomide as well. Lenalidomide was not approved yet. So at the time, again, he had received the bendamustine rituximab RCVP. And so there was some data. It's been not published yet, but Tom Miller has a clinical trial combining pentastatin with bortezomib. So we decided to treat him with that, and he did respond and did well. I would say went into a good partial remission, but again, relapsed within six months. Can you talk more about the patient and his loved ones and their response to this difficult situation? He was a really nice guy, always was with his wife, and it was just the two of them together. His son was actually in the medical profession, was at another university, and was kind of very involved peripherally in his care, which sometimes can be complicated when there's another medical personnel in the family. I mean, it's, I think, helpful but sometimes can be just trying to go back and forth on the communication, but he had lived in another state. What was their perception of the disease? I've heard people say that sort of mantle cell has kind of a scary reputation, not just with patients, but even with physicians. It does. And I think the patient himself was a little oblivious to it. He was a very happy-go-lucky guy. And he really, I would say, was more of a minimalist. He didn't want to be in the hospital. He wanted to live. In fact, he wanted to try and retire back closer to his son that I had just alluded to in the next few years, if it was at all possible. We were going to work on in the future, if we could get him into remission, maybe to transition his care closer to home, closer to his son and that university. What kind of work had he done or was he doing? He was a prior engineer. Hmm. but retired now over 15, almost 20 years. And what was his lifestyle like? What was his functional level like? What was he doing? He was incredibly functional. I would dare to say all activities of daily living he was performing. With that said, he was a pretty simple guy, and he enjoyed just spending time with his wife, and they did some small traveling around the area here in New England but was able to do everything he wanted to do. Now, at 81, what kind of comorbidities, if any, did he have? You know, interestingly, not a lot. I mean, he had hypertension, prior coronary artery disease, but that was about it. I mean, he was otherwise really, for an 81-year-old man, a very functional guy. I would say the disease at this point, after two prior therapies, he had some fatigue, not debilitating in any way. Was it from 
two kind of back-to-back chemotherapies within a two to three year period? Was it the disease that was progressing now? And that's always hard when meeting a patient, especially a relapse refractory, trying to determine, especially fatigue, which is a tough symptom to assess, is that due to the disease or is it due to the prior therapy? Is it due to something else? Is it due to hypothyroidism? I always try to have a wide differential and not put all eggs in one or two baskets. So in having received, first of all, bendamustine rituximab, which probably is the most common initial therapy, particularly older people receive in the past, how did he do in that incidentally? Well, he had received that at an outside institution. He did have some, at least going through the notes and talking to that prior physician, he did have some cytopenias, maybe not surprisingly. I think he was 78 at the time when he received it. And so I think they were only able to get through kind of four and a half cycles. They had to dose reduce him by the third cycle down to 60 milligrams per meter squared, which is below the maybe typical starting dose of 90 milligrams per meter squared, day one and two every 28 days with rituximab. And he had uh, thrombocytopenia from that. And I think they only gave him day one of cycle five and then stopped at that point. So and certainly we know from our surveys that bendamustine rituximab is a very common initial therapy, particularly in older people, also very commonly used in follicular lymphoma. What are the kinds of side effects and toxicities you observe with that regimen, and particularly what happens with older people? I think with bendamustine rituximab, the most common are cytopenias that you have to be cautious of. I don't think it's maybe quite as significant or severe as fludarabine or other purine analogs, but it definitely is an issue. I think two unique side effects, unique just because I've not seen them with other purine analogs. One would be a rash that almost presents like an allergic rash. I had a, another patient, a patient who was on a ECOG bendamustine rituximab follicular lymphoma study that after the second cycle of bendamustine, so it would have been her third dose, had this severe whole body rash that was quite significant. Now, we couldn't tell she was also getting rituximab, which was it due to, but it seemed much more typical with the bendamustine rituximab. For that one patient, we had to give steroids, hold therapy. Interestingly, under the cover of low-dose steroids, we were able to get her through bendamustine. She was able to stay on study. So that's one. The other that is a little peculiar, and it is increased, is nausea vomiting. That seems more than I would expect. And I had another patient on the same ECOG follicular lymphoma E2408 study that had such severe nausea and vomiting, she actually went into acute renal failure. She was a 30-year-old with follicular lymphoma. We thankfully, with brisk fluids, et cetera, were able to get her kidney function back, but it was almost intractable nausea and vomiting. So we're going to talk a little bit about sort of relapse refractory mantle cell, but just to pick up also on a couple of basic issues that come up with these patients and part of their initial education. One is just what is mantle cell? You know, what's the difference between mantle cell and other kinds of lymphomas, follicular lymphoma, diffuse large B cell? How do you explain that to a patient? Sure. And it's probably one of the hardest to explain. I try to obviously tailor the initial lymphoma discussion to the patient, their interests, or education, but what I'll usually try to stay as high level as possible, we'll talk about how there's more than 50 different clinical pathologic subtypes. That'll be the first key point I'll tell patients. 
The second point that I'll mention, because that can be a little scary, oh my gosh, there's 50 different types. The quick other point is we'll say they're all very treatable, quote unquote, meaning give a treatment, it goes away. But we talk about obviously the natural history and I'll lump those 50, 60 different subtypes into two buckets. And we'll talk about a low-grade indolent bucket and then a high-grade aggressive bucket. And we'll talk about the low-grade indolent as ones where patients can go years and sometimes not need treatment. But then we'll say, typically, treatment's needed at some point. Most go into remission, but almost all relapse. And it's a continual remitting, relapsing pattern. In other words, slow-growing, treatable, but not curable. And then we'll talk about the high-grade, aggressive, saying those are ones, of course, you can't wait to treat for years, not even months. It's otherwise fatal, very aggressive, but yet, obviously, the other side of the coin with the aggressives are not only they treatable, the goal is to cure all of those. And so that's important perspective because then for a mantle cell patient, I'll say that's the one subtype you really can't put in a bucket either of those two buckets. And the problem is, for the majority of patients, is it's aggressive, yet you typically have to treat it aggressively, yet it almost always relapses. In other words, that initial therapy, you're not, generally speaking, giving with curative intent, like you would at a typical aggressive lymphoma, like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or even T-cell lymphoma, even though they're less curable, the goal is still to cure it with that initial therapy. And so mantle cell lymphoma is a tough one. And not to say there aren't indolent mantle cell lymphomas. There are about 15 to 20% of mantle cell lymphoma patients. That is maybe a unique feature that you can have different clinical presentations. We will find about 20% will behave more like an indolent lymphoma. In other words, they can go not just several months, but even a few years and not need treatment. But again, the theme is the same for that group or niche of mantle cell, that treatable, going to remission, but almost always relapse. So one other aspect of mantle cell I wanted to ask you about that seems a little, to me, kind of unusual and interesting is the issue of involvement of the GI tract. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how often it's seen, how it's manifested. And for example, with this man, did he have any evidence of that? Did they scope him? A little bit about that. Sure. Yep. No, that's a very common feature, and it's almost all patients, frankly. If you did a EGD colonoscopy, you would find it. We can't say 100%, but it's probably north of 90%. We'll have GI involvement. No, he never had a colonoscopy or EGD, and we didn't do it, partly because he wasn't symptomatic. And I think off of a clinical trial, that's how I'll typically approach it if a patient isn't definitively symptomatic, I won't do it. One, because you know it's present, and two, it doesn't really change anything in particular, meaning that it's not a worse prognosis, and generally speaking, it's not going to lead to any additional complications. In fact, you probably could argue, even if someone was symptomatic, how would it change things? I mean, theoretically, could someone have real significant involvement? Could there be perforation, et cetera? It's possible, but thankfully, that's extremely uncommon. And then the other issue is this man, as most patients do, does have progressive disease beyond bindamustine rituximab, has gotten a couple different therapies at the time point that we wanted to focus on. But I wondered if you could just review, because there have been some significant developments in the treatment of relapse disease, actually three new agents 
now approved in this situation. Originally, bortezomib, the proteasome inhibitor, then lenalidomide, the so-called IMID, and then more recently, ebrutinib, the Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Can you talk a little bit about what those three agents are and how they're used in mantle cell? Sure. And he received each of those in that exact succession. So I think that is an exciting aspect that we have three somewhat targeted drugs to treat this somewhat aggressive lymphoma, as I'd alluded to. And so, yeah, they each work by a different mechanism, generally speaking. Bortezomib is what we would call a proteasome inhibitor. And so we all have proteasomes in the body, and they kind of protect us from certain things. And some patients have, in particular mantle cell patients, have something called NF-kappa-beta, It's a signaling factor that mantle cell lymphoma, it's always turned on. And that's a problem with many lymphomas is they have these abnormal genes called oncogenes that are the light switch is always on and it causes them to constantly be growing. And so what bortezomib is able to do in part, you know, many of these targeted treatments have multiple effects, but the primary effect is it by blocking the proteasome, it then is able to block this NF-kappa B and It was initially approved intravenously, and the main side effect, though, that is dose-limiting with bortezomib is neuropathy, and you have to be quite careful with the neuropathy, not just sensory, sometimes motor neuropathy, and with the sensory, it can be quite painful. What's led to some help and mitigation of that is subcutaneous dosing, which for most patients, almost all patients, unless there's a bizarre reason not to do it, will go with subcutaneous dosing. And another help is also more intermittent dosing. So instead of the twice-weekly dosing, days 1, 4, 8, and 11, to give it weekly. And so by doing that, I can't say it's completely abolished the neuropathy rate, but it's significantly declined. Now, this man had received bortezomib, as you mentioned, but as part of a clinical trial and also had the drug penistatin included. From what you could tell, did he experience any neuropathy? He did not. He did quite well. And actually, at the time, it was intravenous, but it was given only as part with this pentastatin. It was only a day one and four as part of the treatment. The pentastatin was given for five days, Monday through Friday. So it wasn't four doses per cycle. I think that was part of the reason he tolerated that so well. And did he derive any benefit from that therapy? He did. No, he went into almost a complete remission. I would say a really good partial remission. Scans were significantly improved. And overall, what was his quality of life during that time? Really good. And so in retrospect, as I had mentioned, we weren't clear how much of the fatigue was due to therapy. But after two cycles of therapy, and again, he had the subcutaneous disease, so we could literally palpate it, feel it. So we knew he was responding. We didn't need a scan, so to speak, to confirm it. But as the disease responded, his energy levels definitely picked up. Now, I can't say they went to brisk normal. So it probably was a combination of prior therapy and disease, but a significant amount of his fatigue was, in retrospect, due to disease. And that's really the only way to differentiate it, is you'll take the disease away and see how the symptoms behave. And maybe you could just mention what penistatin is. I'm not really sure it's used very much. Yeah, it's mainly used in something called hairy cell leukemia. It would fall into the category of a purine analog as well. It's a chemotherapy the classic hairy cell leukemia model, we'd give it seven days in a row. There's some altered regimens now, like in this situation with this patient where we gave it five days in a row. I tell you, it's pretty well tolerated. And the Mayo Clinic has published on it. And if I had to say, at least in lymphoma, is there a niche 
subtype is probably mantle cell lymphoma, where it's fairly active. As well as, I should also mention, cladribine is another one that is active in mantle cell. One other question related to bortezomib. Of course, we talk about that all the time in multiple myeloma, very commonly utilized. And there we're hearing about oral proteasome inhibitors. There's one called aprozomib that's similar to carfilzomib, and then ixazomib, which is a lot like bortezomib that he received, but oral. Is that being thought about in lymphomas, for example, metal cell? And if they came to bear, how much of an advantage do you think it would be to have an oral proteasome inhibitor? I think it'll be a huge advantage. And yes, they're definitely being studied in lymphoma, even though the initial look is in multiple myeloma, as the proteasome inhibitors, bortezomib, and others were initially. But yes, they are being looked at. And I think the key advantage to it is, as I had alluded to before, the dose-limiting toxicity before when they try to increase the dosing of bortezomib was neuropathy. And one of the advantages, for example, with exazomib, is you're able basically to give a higher dose. And part of that is, remember I had mentioned about how bortezomib locks on to block the proteasome inhibitors. The problem is it does it almost too much or too good because our normal cells, nerve cells, need proteasomes. And so it almost irreversibly binds on, whereas the exazomib, these oral medications, don't bind or block quite as significantly. They let off the proteasome, not quite binding quite as significantly. Thus, you're able to give a higher dose And so the hope is more active and less toxic with these oral medications. So there is an open clinical trial right now accruing in follicular lymphoma, and it is being looked at in possible combination single agent in mantle cell. So another agent that this man received is the immune modulatory agent lenalidomide. Again, can you talk about sort of how it works and how it's used not just in mantle cell, but in general for lymphomas? Sure. Yeah, it's a tough one. This lenalidomide immunomodulatory agent works by really a multiplicity of different pathways. We can't say it's one particular. There's really been some neat, what I would even say elegant, preclinical work where we know one of the reasons anybody gets cancer, not just lymphoma, is they have a faulty immune system. And there's a multitude of reasons, but in other words, the tumor suppressors or their T-cells can't fight it. And we don't know why that always is, but we know immune defect is a common reason. And so some of the preclinical work John Gribben had published in CLL, preclinical models, as well as follicular lymphoma, is in giving lenalidomide, it actually improved the function of T-cells. So you know, T-cells, when they bind onto an antigen to try and knock it down, whether it's an infection or a cancer, There's something called a synapse where it attaches on, and they're able to show in these really neat preclinical models that it significantly enhanced the synapse of the T-cell binding onto the lymphoma cell. So that's one mechanism. Another is we think it knocks down angiogenesis. Some tumors, including lymphomas, have increased angiogenesis. And it affects other pathways, other signaling pathways. I had mentioned NF-kappa-B, but there are other pathways, signaling pathways, I should say, and it also itself causes direct cell kill. There are also other effects on the DNA and RNA. And what specifically is known in terms of the risks and benefits in, let's start out with mantle cell. 
Well, the clinical trial where it was approved, it was really a heavily pre-treated patient population, and he went on the clinical trial at the time. He was one of the last patients that enrolled on it. So you had to be bortezomib-resistant or refractory to enroll onto the lenalidomide trial. So the patients who went on had a median of four prior therapies, which is a pretty heavily pre-treated group. And in that patient population, the remission rate was just under 30%. So you arguably say modest, but for an oral therapy and a heavily pre-treated patient population, I think it's still a benefit. Now, as you mentioned, it's always a risk-benefit ratio, and it can cause fatigue. There is a risk of thrombosis, so patients need to be on aspirin or other anticoagulation, so there has to be caution there. But at least for this patient at that time, there were no other approved agents. And so after he had progressed on the pentastatin bortezomib, our option was that or some other random chemotherapy. So what happened on the lenalidomide? So he, I would say, he didn't quite meet a partial remission. Part of that was, again, he had this big subcutaneous masses. It wasn't your typical internal nodal disease. So they had sort of grown back? They had. They started to grow back quite significantly. And some of these were you know, five centimeters wow. deep and 20 centimeters long, like wrapping around his abdomen. Wow. So amazingly, though, not causing a lot of symptoms. You know, he would joke around a lot saying, oh, you know, it's my belt line is increasing because it was right near his belt line. But he tried to, and, that, and you know, I tried to not take things too serious with him. He liked to joke around, and I think that was his way of coping with the disease is not taking it too serious, and if it was growing, kind of just have some levity with it, which I think is fine. And that's how I think when interacting with patients, you almost have to be like a little bit of a coach where you can't coach everyone the same way and coach them hard or coach them nice. He was someone that was more lighthearted and levity where, you know, you'll have other patients that are much more serious and technical and scientific and want to hear all the data. So I try to feel each patient out and try to kind of go with what makes them feel most confident and strong-minded. Yeah, it's interesting when you mentioned this thing about joking around. I was thinking to myself, I wonder if sometimes patients do that to help their loved ones. It's possible. Yeah, his wife was soft-spoken as well. They both were. And I'm sure she was, you could see, you know, in the room, especially when we had some of the hard conversations about progressive disease, would get quite teary-eyed and sad. So I'm sure you're right, not only himself, but to kind of bring up his significant other a little bit. And, you know, the other thing that's really fascinating about this case, I think it's like this is oncology today as opposed to 10 years ago, is, you know, a case like this really shows you the issue of what being in a trial can mean to somebody nowadays. 81 years old, you know, it's not the sort of typical patient you think about being on three, at least three I've counted so far in this clinical history trials. And that he benefited on them. And, you know, this is not like 10, 15 years ago when you would go on a phase one study of some kind of chemo or something. You knew you would never benefit. Nowadays, there are agents out there that you just can't get any other way. And a lot of times they offer benefit. And this man's a very good example. He is a poster child, quite frankly, of this. Because otherwise, yeah, we would have given some other random chemo. We wouldn't have been able to get through his counts. He probably would have lost his hair, had infections. Etc. And he had none of that. I mean, through all of this, no infections, no hair loss, 100% outpatient, never saw one minute in the hospital. 
So he goes on the lenalidomide, has some benefit, but then again, everything grows back. He does within six months. And so he's in a tough spot at this point. And again, we were thinking, gosh, do we need to give chemotherapy? And at the time, Brutinib was not approved, and there was the ongoing pivotal clinical trial. And you heard rumblings at the time that it is quite active, in particular in mantle cell. And in retrospect, yes, now we know as a single oral agent, even in relapse refractory, you have remission rates up to 80%, which is unbelievable. You know, you could give somebody high-dose ICE, ESHAP, combination, inpatient, high-dose chemotherapy, I'm not sure you would get a remission rate of 80%. Maybe, but it would be short-lived. So yes, it was a single agent, a Brutinib clinical trial, and we were blown away by the effect. I have before and after images that are almost hard to believe as PET scan that look like a Christmas tree just lit up everywhere with all these multiple subcutaneous masses within three months was almost in a complete remission. Wow. I mean, it literally, literally melted away. And it continued to get better, I think, is something else, which is an upside to these oral targeted agents is you're able to keep giving it. You know, chemotherapy, you can only give it for three, four months, partly because of tolerability. But after six months, he was 100% complete remission. And what kind of toxicity, if any, did he have? You know, he did pretty good. So he had two side effects that I would say they were tolerable, and they happened later on, months down the road. He actually got a couple oral ulcers that hasn't been well described, I think, with a brute nib, and it's not clear. Is it a mucositis? Is it an infection? that I think needs to be more clearly fleshed out and figured out. They weren't intolerable. We held the drug for a week or two and then dose reduced it and he did okay. And then he also had a little bit, I don't know if I called it an arthritic, it was more arthralgias with his hands that he had that also we had to hold medication and then dose reduce. But ultimately with those modifications, those side effects went away, but his blood counts were fine. He otherwise really tolerated the medication quite well. What's your vision of how ibrutinib works, why it works so well? There are a couple of different, quote, small B-cell inhibitor molecules out there. There's also a dalesib. There's another one I don't think has a name called ABT199. How do these different agents work? So, yeah, there is something on our B-cells because we know lymphoma, I had mentioned the way I talked about it before, were the two clinical buckets, the indolent, the aggressive the other way to break up lymphomas are their B-cell lymphomas or T-cell lymphomas. In the U.S., about 85% are B-cell and 15% are T-cell. And so why is that? Well, just like breast cancer comes from a normal breast cell that doesn't die and keeps growing, these B-cell lymphomas start from our normal B-cells, usually in the lymph nodes. That's why we call it peripheral. You know, it doesn't start inside the bone marrow like an acute leukemia. So it's something goes wrong in the B cell and it grows. Just like in the T cells, you can get the T cell lymphoma. So going back to B cell, so we know the B cell, something is going on with the B cell. And so all these B cells, all of our B cells, frankly, have a B cell receptor. And going back to what I had mentioned before about part of the oncogenes and the multiple things that cause them to grow... Well, your B-cell receptor shouldn't be always turned on. And in many of these B-cell lymphomas, it's turned on. So it'd be great if there's a way to turn that switch off. And in a way, that's what a brutinib does. Or I should say more specifically, there's something called bruton tyrosine kinase. 
that is associated with the B-cell receptor on the surface of the cell. And by blocking the BTK, you're able to turn the light off, shut down the B-cell receptor. And that's partly how that drug works. Now, there's other interactions or intersections, I should say. For example, the, something called PI3 kinase is a pathway very close to the B-cell receptor. That's what idelalisib, another oral agent, will block. And then a little bit more downstream, the ABT199, Neil, that you had alluded to, is a BCL2 antagonist. So that has to do with apoptosis and blocking that. But it's an agent not approved yet, but one that looks quite intriguing. Yeah, and it really, you know, fits in this model. We're talking about, you know, I've heard about so many cases with this ABT drug where they've seen these great responses, and only way you're going to get it is on a trial. So, you know, theoretically, it's another agent that sort of fits into that category. There are a couple of issues in terms of administration of ibrutinib I wanted to ask you about. First, one thing that has been observed with, I think, a lot of these agents, and I'm not sure if it's been seen in mantle cell, but I know, like, for example, CLL, is a lymphocytosis. Can you talk about that, and did this man have that, or does it happen with mantle cell? You know, less so in mantle cell than in CLL that you will see it, but yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon, and we didn't quite know how to deal with it initially. In the very first few patients, when, let's say for a CLL patient, and their lymphocyte count was 50,000, which isn't that big of a concern in a CLL patient, and you give the medication, and a few weeks later, it's 80, 90, 100,000. In the old days, so to speak, you'd say, oh, gosh, this is progressive disease. But it's not with abrutinib and some of these novel B-cell receptor agents. It has a unique effect where it basically facilitates movement of the cells from the lymph node into the blood. So in a way, it's maybe due to really, frankly, rapid response of the lymph node shrinking and these cells being pushed out into the bloodstream temporarily. And what happens, and you kind of initial few weeks can see this peak of the lymphocyte count, but then over the subsequent few weeks, it does go down. And so it's really kind of acknowledging that, that no, lymph nodes are getting smaller as the lymphocyte count in the blood is going up, but it is transient and will go down, but it can take several weeks. Another thing I want to ask you about related to ibrutinib is the bleeding. What kind of bleeding has been seen, and what are the clinical implications, particularly as it relates to patients on, say, anticoagulation for something else? Yeah, I would say it's an issue. I wouldn't say it's a huge concern, but with that said, you know, we need to know more about it, in particular why it's happening. I'm not sure we're clear on the mechanism. I would say it's, generally speaking, uncommon in terms of severe bleeding. In most cases, when you see it, it's more in the range of petechiae, even ecchymosis, that you can see in patients. With that said, was there a small increase in severe bleeding? It was, but it was thankfully single digits, severe meaning grade three, grade four in patients. But in 20 to 30%, you can see just more along the lines of the ecchymosis and the petechiae. So it's something to, I guess, be cognizant of, and patients who obviously might see it would bring it up. Hey, what are all these red dots that I'm seeing on my arms or legs, or what is this kind of easy bruising? And so I think it's something to reassure patients on in most instances. With that said, you don't want to minimize it. It's not impossible. There could be a bleeding event related to it. So obviously to monitor hemoglobin, hematocrit, et cetera, make sure there's not a drop there. I think we're in a little bit, fair to say, uncharted territory of 
what to do with patients on full-dose anticoagulation. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, frankly. And, you know, on the very early clinical trials, there were actually a couple subarachnoid hemorrhages. They were mainly patients who were on full-dose anticoagulation. So not to say every patient on full-dose anticoagulation will develop a subarachnoid. It's the opposite. It's the minority. But it is an issue, and I would argue a concern. So I think it would depend on the patient at that time. Why are they on anticoagulation? Do they really need to be on it? You know, was this for a DVT they had five years ago and they could come off it now? Maybe we could transition them to a different therapy, something more manageable. But yeah, that's right now probably the most challenging situation in dealing with abrutinib, someone who is on full-dose anticoagulation. Is there a type of anticoagulation you would rather have the patient on? You know, see, I've heard others will say, well, I'd want them on an oral inhibitor agent, one of the new antithrombin agents, or I'd want them on low molecular weight. I think it really depends on the patient. I guess an upside to low molecular is it's more stable. In other words, the dosing, you know, you're obviously with warfarin, it's sometimes with diet, your INR can be 2.5 one day, it could be six a few days later. So if it's a really trustworthy patient who I know is checking their INR and we can keep it closer to the two range than the three range, I'll be fine with that. But if it's someone where it's just they've been less reliable, not sure, it probably would be someone I would transition if they really needed to be on anticoagulation to a low molecular weight. And what do you do if a patient's only brutinib and needs surgery or dental procedure? Yeah, again, I would say we're in a little bit of somewhat of a at least prospective data-free zone, but I've typically approached it somewhat like an aspirin, so I would stop it is the quick response. And so I would usually about a week beforehand. Now, would it be okay a few days beforehand with a less invasive like a dental cleaning? Yes. And in fact, you probably could stay on it with a dental cleaning. But I think out of an abundance of precaution until we have more data, I would say for a procedure, certainly something more invasive, at least a week prior. So I want to follow up and see what happened with this man. But first, since we brought up this issue of small B-cell inhibitor molecules and you talked about how they worked, maybe we can just take this opportunity to also talk about some of the clinical issues with these agents. So beginning with Adelesa, but it is approved now in CLL as well as indolent lymphoma. I don't know how much experience is there with mantle cell. With adenolysis? Yeah. No, it is active. So, uh, again, what do we know about the tolerability and side effects of adenolysis? So, yeah, uh, I would say, has also, each one of these medications seemingly have a few unique side effects that there has to be caution with. The one initial one that can sometimes be seen are the liver function test can be increased. And... Thankfully, it's usually not severe. With that said, in 5% or so of patients, can it be in the many hundreds? The liver function test, yes, it can be. So that's something that needs to be tracked closely, I would argue, early on. Needs to be tracked at least every visit, every cycle. And if someone's coming in with a baseline elevation in their liver function test, I probably would check it more often than once a month every cycle, at least every few weeks. So that's one to watch. It's usually almost always manageable, even in the ones where there's high elevations by holding it and can usually restart it at a lower dose and it's tolerable. With somewhat more extended dosing, a couple unique side effects are you can see colitis and pneumonitis. That is quite inflammatory in nature and again, thankfully is uncommon, if not rare, but can happen and it can be quite 
significant, the side effects, the pneumonitis, as you would expect as a patient would present with cough, shortness of breath, trouble breathing, colitis with diarrhea, even some bleeding, and you often need to use steroids. And that's a little more challenging. I think if it's a very mild case, it's caught early, possibly after use of steroids and a dose reduction. On the rare patient who has a severe reaction, I had found it harder to restart that therapy. But again, focusing on these side effects, it would fall in the uncommon territory. And I would say for the majority of patients, it is well tolerated. In terms of quality of life and sort of how people feel, fatigue, this kind of thing, how do people feel? They do fine. I mean, are there minimal slight effects? There can be. But I would say, obviously, comparatively to chemotherapy, it's night and day with all of these agents, whether abrutinib, bortezomib, idelalisib. Really, I would say on quality of life, big picture, especially comparatively to chemotherapy, it's night and day. How about ABT199? I don't know if you administer that as part of a trial. So I did. I had one patient on it, so I only have an N of one on that. But the main issue my patient had on that was thrombocytopenia. It was tolerable. They did not need to come off study. So it's hematologic mainly that I've seen with that. But also, again, these novel agents is, I would say, overall a well-tolerated drug. The one thing we have heard about with that is that it seems like it works so fast that you can see tumor lysis syndrome. That is another. Yeah, my patient did not have that. But yes, in one of the recent clinical trials, it does work so fast. I think that's part of it. We don't know. There's probably more to it than just working fast. And I think that's trying to be figured out. Part of it's dose related. There were a couple really severe events, at least of the data that was presented at last year's ASH meeting related to it. And it was when they got to the really high dosing where that happened. So I think they're working on dose modification kind of starting slow to maybe kind of ease your way in, so to speak. And at least on the early returns on that strategy is it's been lower incidence of tumor lysis syndrome. But that definitely has to be, I think, fleshed out before it comes to market. So this man had this great response, was doing really well, and he brutinib, then what? So, no, he did great. So went into a complete remission. And again, this was on the clinical trial. So this was two years ago that he started. And He was able, you know, his initial desire when we met several years ago was to move closer to his son. So he did move. We transitioned care to this other state and we kept in contact. The referring doc, the oncologist I had hooked him up with was able to keep me in touch. And he was maintained for about another year in remission. He ultimately progressed on it. So after almost a two-year remission, and at that point, it was another clinical trial. They actually didn't have a clinical trial close to him at that point, and he didn't want to travel, and he actually recently died due to disease. Do you know if he entered hospice? Neil, that is a good question, and he did. But, you know, that's probably something, gosh, I would say, I hate to throw ourselves under the bus, that maybe as hematologic specialists, we're probably not savvy enough and good enough With hospice, I think sometimes we talk about treatable and all these different agents. It's something we could probably do a better job, but he was under the care of hospice. He was one, though, I think that really saw the forest through the trees, and he was, I think, after he had progressed, he was thrilled and very happy. He basically was able, again, to stay outpatient with essentially mostly oral therapy, several years of good life. I think he said, you know what, I've had enough, and I would like to die at home, which he did. You know, just picking up the last issue, though, about hospice is interesting. I don't think it's just about hematologic oncologists or specialists. 
you know, we did a national patterns of care study of 101 oncologists. And when we looked into the issue of hospice and lung cancer and GI cancer, we found that 75, 80% of patients went in hospice. Now remember, these are the general oncologists taking care of them. And yet, their patients with follicular lymphoma and even myeloma, the number of them going in hospice is markedly less. And that's been reported in the literature. And I think people, I haven't seen a real great explanation. People have suggested maybe with these cancers, you know, it's kind of harder to give up because they see so many responses. Any sense about, you know, what's going on there? I think that's part of it. As many situations, it's a two-way street. I think patients themselves, you know, they know that there are different agents and different options, and it is more responsive, so to speak. But the clear fact, it is still diminishing returns in most hematologic malignancies as you go along. And it's knowing, kind of having that discussion with patients. And especially as you get to fifth, sixth, seventh, if it gets their relapse, I think it's as the practitioner having that conversation. And when you talk about, okay, now what? What are the options? That one of the options is, uh, I wouldn't say do nothing, but supportive care. And to really talk about with whatever therapy, whether it's an abrutinib, whether it's another chemotherapy, what are the chances of it working? And I think maybe we get too embroiled sometimes with the numbers, but obviously I think the numbers are important to put things in perspective. And obviously we have to make sure quality of life is in that picture. But I think it's a two-way street making sure, but I think in that two-way street, it's really the practitioner who has to kind of make sure that we're as forthright and honest and talking about all the possible options of which supportive care hospice for that patient relapse refractory, it should be discussed. 